Hello and welcome to a special edition of a Business Line podcast. We have today a very interesting guest, Rajesh Jain. For people of a certain vintage, which means that people who have been around since late 90s or so, Rajesh is a very familiar figure. But uh, since we have a large uh, number of readers who are young, readers, listeners, viewers, wherever they are joining from who are young, uh, let me just give you a little bit of brief about Rajesh. Uh, Rajesh is an electrical engineer from IIT Bombay. Then he went to do his uh, MS uh, from Colombia. He came back to India, worked for a brief while before uh, launching uh, his own startup in the mid 90s which was India World, which was a collection of India-centric uh, websites. He was actually one of the original dot-com pioneers, not just in India, but probably in the Asia context too, and a very successful one at that. Rajesh had a very successful exit just uh, four or five years after he started uh, India World when he sold it to Satyam Infoway uh, for a then fairly large sum of $150 million. Uh, Subsequently, he dabbled in uh, a long period of political entrepreneurship, uh, uh, trying to uh, set things right in India's political landscape as he chose to see. And now he has returned uh, back to full-time entrepreneurship in a sense with his uh, venture Netcore Cloud. Though Netcore Cloud has been around for some time, Rajesh has re-energized the company we will talk and uh, walk all this through uh, the course of this conversation. Welcome to BL Podcast, Rajesh. Thank you very much for inviting me, Venkatesh. Let's uh, begin at the uh, very early start. You were one of uh, India's very early dot-com pioneers. Uh, what was the trigger at that point of time in mid-90s when there was hardly any internet uh, penetration? I still remember the dial-up days even having a phone connection was a privilege. During uh, a, such a, a fairly bleak kind of an outlook, you chose to believe in the power of the World Wide Web and uh, invested and set up and successfully ran uh, some of the best known sites in the country at that point of time. Why don't you give us a little bit of perspective on how the journey happened and why you chose to exit uh, all of that in the late 1990s? Sure. So uh, the path of becoming an entrepreneur was a bit pre-decided. I'd seen my father uh, as, an, uh, as a serial entrepreneur. He tried many things in his life. A few worked, many did not. And when I went to the US for my education, he was quite clear that uh, after doing my master's and working for a couple of years, I should come back to India. And then whatever I wanted to do, I should do it in India. So the path of entrepreneurship in a way was uh, sort of chosen for me. And I walked down that path. The first two and a half years after I came back, uh, I had a lot of failures. I tried many different things. Uh, none of them really worked out. Uh, but then I used to read a lot. And I kept thinking about what are the new ideas there. And at that time, uh, this was mid to late 1994, the internet had just started emerging. There was talk of the World Wide Web. A mosaic as a browser uh, had just been launched. And... Uh, I related the power of what it could do to my own uh, time that I had spent in the US. That when I was in the US wanting to come back to India, I found it very difficult to get information on India. The newspapers would take 10 days. Uh, very few magazines were available. I mean, India Today had an edition, but again, 
it would it was fortnightly and would come with delays out there. Uh, so you had to rely on some of the Usenet news groups at that time for India-centric uh, news. And uh, I thought that the internet could really be a great bridge uh, for information for NRIs, non-resident Indians. Uh, and uh, it came, came a lot from my own personal experience that while I was there in the US, like I said, the information was very hard and the internet could bridge these distances. So I thought of uh, at that time, India World as a as an electronic information marketplace, really, which connected Indians globally. And that uh, led to the launch of India World uh, in uh, March 1995. Uh, we launched very close to the time Yahoo and eBay did. So we were very early on. And uh, of course, I had no background in media. I understood tech well. Uh, but I had aggregated a lot of content from many different media sources, you know, uh, and again, uh, talking to Indians in the U.S., I'd realized that the two anchors, as it were, were India Today and R.K. Lakshman cartoons. Uh, we managed to get both of them. We also had Amanchitra Katha comics, daily news, stock quotes, uh, short stories and poems from India, recipes from India. And so lots of different uh, sections were there. And uh, I really didn't do much advertising. I think I ran just one ad in uh, India Today International. But the word of mouth for a service like this, I was very good because Indians were quite connected within their organizations. So whether you're working at GE or IBM, et cetera, you had internal news groups or internal sort of mailing lists. And uh, that's what helped spread the word about India world. We used to make sure that we updated the site regularly and all the audience uh, initially was Indians worldwide. So uh, India, in fact, when I launched Commercial internet access in India was not available. It came later that year in August uh, 1995. Uh, so we were very early on uh, in terms of uh, the launch. <laughs> Remember, we had to dial up to US servers and update the content on a daily basis uh, or, or multiple times a day. And that was sort of a very expensive proposition because we had to make international calls. But uh, people loved the site. The word of mouth helped spread it. Uh, we had a few ups and downs. And then uh, 97. I said that, I, in fact, this idea came to my wife and me. We were both running the business together, Bhavna and me. This that while India World was sort of a gigantic portal by that time, with probably 30, 40 subsections, what if we could take a few of those sections, give them their own branding, so that people could eliminate that one extra click to get to them? And from there came perhaps the best idea of India World was creating these verticals. So samachar.com for news. Kill.com for cricket scores and real-time coverage, Coach.com for search, Bavarchi.com for recipes. These were the four. We did 13 and all, but these are the four that worked very well. And uh, uh, those became sort of household names. I mean, even like you said, if today, even today, if you talk to people of a certain vintage <laughs> who had lived in the US, they'll remember uh, some of these portals. Uh, Samachar, in fact, was a big hit. It became sort of the start page for Indians. Uh, we had one page where we had links to uh, news items from uh, probably about 30, 40 different Indian sources, uh, uh, news sources. Um, and uh, that worked out very well with that. Advertising started coming in. We also had, uh, we also did websites uh, for many organizations in India. In fact, at one time we ran probably 200 plus, or we managed 200 plus corporate sites from India. Almost all the big brands, uh, big corporate corporations were with us. Yeah, and uh, uh, so because the revenue sources came in first from the website development and then from uh, advertising, 
our small team of 20 uh, we are a small team of 20 and uh, we didn't have to worry about uh, funding because we were profitable from the very early days and uh, that made a big difference uh, uh, finally because uh, well, I, I started looking for venture capital for growth because the internet had started growing in India. Companies were getting funded. And I realized that if we had to build from the foundation that we had, uh, we would need capital to hire uh, better talent, uh, to do some amount of additional marketing, etc. And uh, uh, But uh, that never worked out. I talked with many people for various reasons. I could not raise uh, venture capital. And in the end, in late uh, November 99, in a space of probably a week, I got two buyout offers. So one was from Satyam Infoway, um, which I've just listed on NASDAQ. Uh, so they, their primary focus was IS, an ISP, Internet Service Provider, and they also had uh, a small content business. And the second one was from a US company, Mail.com, which owned India.com. And uh, I had Merrill Lynch as my advisors. They negotiated with both of them. And uh, in probably a week's time, the valuation went from $40 million uh, to $115 million. So the yeah. intention was never to emerge as an eventual media baron. It was just the technology, the underlying technology, which was of interest to you. And once that uh, stabilized to a, a certain degree, uh, you are no more interested in either aggregating or curating content. And that's why you chose to move on. Uh, not really, Venkatesh. Actually, the idea was to run India World. I mean, uh, when we were running it, the assumption was that I would run it for a lifetime. I loved it. My wife and I, Bhavna and I had put all our time and effort into building this out. It was like a baby. But I also realized that without capital, we would struggle. And because we were not able to raise capital and we got these offers, which were extraordinary in the context that our revenues were less than a million dollars at that time. And I remember advice that uh, Himendra Bhai, uh, two pieces of advice that Himendra Bhai uh, Kothari uh, who was the head of Merrill Lynch at that time, DSP Merrill Lynch, uh, gave me. He said, first, as an entrepreneur, more important than knowing when to enter a business is knowing when to exit a business. <laughs> and the sort of corollary to that, which he said was that, look, Rajesh, you're, this is an amazing value that you are getting. It may be very difficult for you to get, realize this kind of value again as an entrepreneur. And you will have a lot of ideas. Don't get fixated on this single idea. Uh, you will get many more ideas. You will get freedom to then use your own money to build new things in the future. And uh, don't hesitate in selling. Business is not just about running the same thing uh, continuously. But if you get opportunities, always look at that. But like yeah. in, in uh, today's India, if there was enough venture capital sloshing around, maybe we would be talking to a media baron today. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I wonder what would have happened if I had not sold. <laughs> um <laughs> The, the thing, Venkatesh, is that the two, three years after that were a severe downturn, as we all know, you know, the early 2000s. The dot-com bust. The dot-com bust. And then survival during that period may have become very difficult. I mean, the, really, the internet, the media properties, etc., started taking off almost 10 years later, around 2010, when we had a critical mass of users within India. And uh, I don't know how or whether I would have survived those 10 years without capital. So, I mean, I always believe that whatever happens, happens for a good reason. Uh, <laughs> uh, you have to be optimistic as an entrepreneur. But outside of the exit, um, uh, the thing which uh, flummoxes a lot of uh, observers of your career, uh, Rajesh, has been that from being this pioneering uh, entrepreneur in a 
fairly untested new space who suddenly flipped and uh, went and became a political entrepreneur. How did that happen? Why this sudden interest in politics? Uh, not many people might be aware today if the famed BJP IT cell has the kind of flex and muzzle as it does today. A part of the foundation was laid by Rajesh. He, in fact, uh, laid uh, ground for uh, Modi's emergence as the eventual prime minister uh, of the country in 2014. Even while Modi was merely the chief minister, you reached out to him, you helped him set up the phone lines, uh, set up the messaging in backend uh, infrastructure. What made you do all this? Were you always interested in politics? Uh, was there any particular trigger? So uh, just to clarify, I think there were a lot of people who helped in 2014 uh, in the campaign. There were a lot of people who were sort of uh, individuals working on their own. Uh, I just helped set up a team uh, because I realized that just being an individual, it would be very difficult to build anything in scale. And I worked from the outside. So I did not really, was, I was never part of the BJP IT cell. I funded all that I did. Uh, I had a hundred percent team, uh, Niti Digital uh, at that time, the company uh, entirely on my own because I was quite clear that I would not take any funds uh, from um, uh, either uh, Mr. Modi or the BJP uh, at all. So the, the question about my interest in the political space came actually from a friend of mine who once asked a question. It was probably in late 2008, I think. He said, Rajesh, your son uh, is three years old. Um, and when he grows up and uh, asks you a question that, you know, Papa, you saw all that was going wrong in India. Uh, and again, if you look back at that time, you know, there were a lot of things which were not working out well for India also in that period. And no, not, not just for that one period, but overall, uh, India was not a rich country. You know? It's basically, in fact, we still are a relatively poor country compared to many other nations. But if he asked you, you saw all what was happening. You had the time, you had the money. Why didn't you do something about it? What will you answer? Him? And that question sort of made me think. And... I think the timing was such that between uh, 1999, after I sold India World to 2007, 8, tried many things in Netcore in over those 10 years. Uh, many of the ideas did not work. So we are still fairly small. I'd also got a professional CEO and a CEO. So they were building out the team. I had time on my hands. Then came the slowdown also of uh, uh, the global financial crisis of 2008. Uh, the 2009 elections were coming up. And then I said to myself, I said, you know, uh, it is people like us, the, the middle class, as it were, uh, the, um, who have to help out, uh, help transform India. You know, the, the very rich elite you know, sort of get around the system. The very poor have no time or ability to do anything much, but it's the middle class. And for a lot of time, most of time that we know it, you know, middle class really has seceded from India. They've sort of turned away from the political side. And I, I said, okay, let me try out what I can do as an entrepreneur, with an entrepreneurial mindset. So I'm very good at the zero to one thing, the startup stuff. So I uh, um, I'd gone to, uh, through a couple of uh, connects, which were there. I met Mr. Modi in Ahmedabad when he was chief minister. And I said, here are a few ideas, which I think will help you uh, in, in the 2014 campaign on media, uh, data analytics, a volunteering platform, 
And uh, uh, I think you are the best person to lead India, to put India on a path of prosperity. Um, uh, 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 almost like how countries like Singapore and uh, South Korea and others sort of went down that path. And uh, I will uh, work on using my technology and some limited media skills to make this thing happen. So this was very early on. And uh, I put a team of 100, pers- 100 people together, almost uh, exactly like an entrepreneur would build a startup. Uh, in this case, the outcome of success was not an exit or a sale, but a binary outcome. I'd written a blog post in 2012. Uh, I used to blog daily uh, around that time that uh, BJP should aim to win 275 seats on its own. Until that time, the highest they had won was 182. The majority figure is, of course, 272. And uh, as an entrepreneur, I, I thought that what really they need to do is to think very disruptively. I mean, incrementally, you can maybe get to 200, 210, 220. And in the political side, the incremental was a sum of state elections. But the disruptive thing was a national campaign, you know, where the, the whole nation comes together, or at least a large part of the nation comes together to vote uh, for a leader rather than the local regional party and or regional uh, le- leaders. And, uh, and that's how I sort of worked. Uh, we, we built... Um, uh, like I said, India272.com as a volunteering platform. Uh, there was a lot of interest among uh, people gl- throughout the country to help out in whichever way they could and so on. And um, well, uh, it ended up as a very good outcome. BJP got 282, so a majority. And uh, probably underscore you said that uh, the 100-member team which you employed were all paid out of your pocket and you took no money from BJP at that point of time. This was a purely voluntary effort uh, done by you and your team. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I, I said that if I work as a single individual, then basically I'm like two hands, two legs, one brain, and that's it. But what do I know best? I know how to build startups very well. Not all of them had succeeded in my past till that time or even after that. But I know how to build teams of people, how to solve problems. So I looked at uh, the problems from a data, media, tech space. Internet was growing in India. Facebook was growing strong. A lot of the middle class in India had internet access at that time. So you could reach out to people digitally. And that's what we worked on. So basically, this was back-end call centers. This was uh, lacks of SMSs being pushed out. Uh, what was no, being no. done? Just no, to- not, not as much. So there, was, there were four things, actually, which we did. One was there was a media site, nitycentral.com. So that gave, uh, essentially, that worked as a counter to the mainstream media thinking, which was very sort of anti-BJP and anti-Modi at that time. So it gave a counter view on on what was happening, how to view events. And that was actually very helpful for BJP supporters nationally to be able to take talking points and persuasion points from there. The second thing which I did was I... Uh, set up indiavotes.com as an aggregation of election data. So election commission had all the data. It was not very well presented. So uh, to even do any sort of analytics where, you know, which are the seats that BJP should be concentrating on. There are 543 seats. But when I analyzed the data, I realized that there were only 299 seats that actually won uh, once at least. So the concentration should really be in these 300 seats rather than spreading out over 543 seats. So that was the second uh, key thing, uh, uh, aggregation of electoral data and then being able to do targeting. Third was the support for the ground uh, forces on election day or close to the election day. 
and which are the polling booths where the targeting should be done. Um, so we had a lot of technology that we had built um, that where people supporting the BJP could uh, SMS their voter ID. And then we could map that onto the polling booth. And uh, therefore, on the election day, uh, it's not just about who supports you, but you need to get those people out to vote. Um, so then the local uh, workers, polling workers, could basically go out and, and get them out to vote. And the fourth was a volunteering platform, India272.com. Uh, so that basically had uh, user-generated content, uh, which then could be spread. So anyone creating something had a distribution platform to get it out to other people uh, mm. through uh, through this platform. So you know, a lot of energy from across the country came together from people supporting uh, Mr. Modi and, and, and the BJP at that time. A lot of this sounds similar to what happens in uh, US elections. Were you taking a template out from there? I, I, absolutely, Venkatesh. So uh, there was a book uh, which had come out uh, about the Obama campaign of 2012, uh, written by uh, uh, Sasha Eisenberg called Victory Lab. And what it did was it basically gave a 100-year history of the political science and the tech being used uh, in the elections. Now, the tech is a very broad word because, of course, you didn't have computers earlier on. But uh, there were some very interesting ways by which, uh, at least in the last 20, 30 years, they had used technology for polling, for uh, for getting out the vote, for identifying supporters, etc. And I uh, I used a lot of ideas, but Indianized them for our context. Uh, uh, and... Uh, uh, that actually worked out quite well because uh, it allowed us to try out many new things, many new innovations uh, uh, on, in the political landscape uh, in India. And those were very early days. Of course, now many parties have uh, used uh, a lot of those ideas uh, from that period on. And of course, the new technology also, which has come up in the last uh, eight years or eight to 10 years. Apart from the successful 2014 campaign, till when were you uh, associated or working in uh, voluntary or otherwise capacity uh, for uh, BJP Rajesh, you and your team. Yeah. So I uh, I was very clear that once the 2014 election ends, my work ends. So I disbanded the team that was there. I had no interest in direct politics. Uh, my interest was more on how do we drive for prosperity? How do we transform India? You know, the the uh, the, the question really, which uh, I started thinking a lot deeply about after 2014, even as I was back at Netcore, uh, was uh, why is India poor? You know, uh, a simple point, you know, that you take Indians to pretty much any other country in the world, take them to Singapore, US, and they are among the highest earners out there. So what keeps Indians poor uh, in, uh, in India? And I sort of taught myself economics, uh, attended multiple conferences, uh, understood what public choice theory was, understood the ideas of classical liberalism, and then sort of uh, uh, realized that what we really need in India is, quote, a freedom movement. And this is not freedom as in political independence from the British, but more economic freedom, social freedoms, individual freedoms, civic freedoms, because freedom is the precursor to. To, to prosperity um, and uh, especially economic freedom. And uh, I realized that it is not in the interests of most people in power. And it's true in most countries in the world, uh, unless sort of constrained by the constitution of that country, uh, 
um, for most people in power, it's uh, uh, not very helpful to give um, a lot of economic freedom because uh, governments or people in power tend to uh, interfere in, in voluntary exchange, as they say. Sorry um, to interrupt you, just to get clarity, did you end your association then in, in the immediate aftermath of the 2014? Yeah, so my association and the voluntary capacity ended in 2014 itself after the election. And then what I did was I created uh, a, I tried to create, it failed, of course, eventually, a movement, what I called Naidisha, uh, to try and change people's minds that look what, because I said the politicians, it's in a marketplace. So politicians respond to demand from people. If people demand more economic freedom, rather than just handouts, <laughs> um, then there'll be a different sort of outcome. The politicians will be forced to respond. So I tried to, uh, I called it Naidisha, a new direction for India. And uh, 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 there was a small team that I had put together. Uh, we were trying to uh, change minds because I said the way to change votes is to first change minds of people. Uh, but that didn't work out. So uh, early 2019, um, I, I ended uh, my political efforts. I said, okay, one success, one failure. <laughs> uh, and then came back to Netcore full time. And meanwhile, of course, Netcore had been growing very well. We'll come to Netcore in a moment. Uh, would it be, correct me if I'm wrong, would it be um, right to say that you had the sub, in the five-year period between 2014 to 2019 probably soured a little bit in your enthusiasm for the kind of politics, in a sense, you ushered into bring? Or do you think that it's a more of a systemic challenge uh, which is what uh, you try to address through Naidisha. I think for me, it was more the fact that what is the root of the problem in India? And one of the things that uh, I realized as I was uh, thinking and having multiple conversations with people who knew much better than me, it's basically rules, not rulers. So it's the rules of a country which actually matter. And if you compare, and where are the rules encoded? It's in the constitution. So if you compare the American constitution, which is so small, it can you can fit it into your pocket versus India, which has the largest, longest constitution uh, in the world, probably. Um, the American constitution puts the constraints on those in power, while the Indian constitution does exactly the opposite. It basically gives a lot of freedom to those in power. And I think that is where the outcomes end up being different. So you can keep changing rulers, but unless you change the rules, things are not going to change. And one of the insights that I had was that the core sort of uh, base for any political party, uh, or in fact, all political parties put together, is about a third of the voting population in the country. So BJP plus Congress plus the regionals, the core supporters uh, would be about 33 crore out of 100 crore voters. 33 crore people are actually not voting at all. I mean, two thirds, we have 65, 67% voting. And another, the other 33 crore in the middle are essentially what I call floaters and wasters. So they are making up their mind either at the last minute, they are floaters, or they are wasting their vote, voting for small parties or independent candidates who are unlikely to ever win. So my thinking was that if we can persuade this 66 crore, what I call the NANDs, non-aligned non-voters, to come together 
they can then demand change because then they have the ability to decide, determine the outcome of an election. Even if it is 10%, 20%, 30%, they can determine outcomes. And how do you educate them at scale? So what I realized is that a lot of the country actually sort of there is a permanence of policies. You know, so welfare policies are there. A lot of the uh, taxation policies are there. I mean, the, the people in power change them at the on the economic side. Okay, I'm not talking about the social and cultural side. For me, the focus was really on the economic prosperity. Uh, they are changing them at the margins. So if that had to change, you know, people have to basically say that I want, I'm going to vote not on caste lines or, uh, or, uh, or religion lines or community lines or on who's giving me more freebies, but I'm going to vote for freedom, especially economic freedom and prosperity. And it had come up with a very interesting idea called Dhan Vapasi at that time, which basically said that India is a rich country, Indians are poor. And if we can return the wealth of the Indians, which is locked up today in land and public sector undertakings and minerals, and you know there's corruption, et cetera, which sort of siphons away at the state level, local level, national level, which siphons away a lot of this wealth. If you can return this wealth to people, people can create their own prosperity. In fact, in most of our life, we don't need government. We do very well. You go to a market, you know, people are doing voluntary exchange. Okay? And we will only do a trade if both of us turn out, come out better. But then government intervenes. <laughs> and that creates the problem. You know, then, and the more the government interventions, you know, the, the poorer a country is. So I, I wrote a lot about these ideas. And, but I could not sort of persuade any more than a handful of people. After that interesting political sajan, just to get back to your business ventures, um, Netcore uh, was around since 2006-07, uh, correct me again if my timelines are wrong, uh, but was more hibernating for a period of time before you came back, took charge. Uh, when did all this happen? Now, what is the focus of the company? Uh, if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Rachel. Sure. So Netcore is actually 25 years old. It was set up just before I had sold uh, India World in 1997. Um, and uh, for the first 10 years, we didn't grow much. We were doing Linux mail servers for corporates in India. Um, and we tried a lot of ideas. Probably in that 2000 to 2007 period, I must have tried 10, 12 ideas um, on what to do in Netcore. But none of them really got traction. And then I realized the problem is me. I can come up with ideas, but I cannot take them out to market. And that's what led me to professionalize the Netcore management. So I got in a CEO and a CEO. And it's run like that pretty much ever since with a professional CEO for the last 15 years. And our growth, first sort of growth started uh, in 2007 period with SMS services for enterprises and, and what we call mass mailing, email services for enterprises. So there was no consumer component in this. It's all enterprise services. And we've stuck to that uh, since then. And uh, uh, that was actually a very interesting problem that we were solving because uh, uh, at that time, uh, the, the, the digital identity of uh, available with people was growing rapidly. We had a mobile number and or an email ID. Brands needed to communicate and engage with people. And they could do that now at an individual level. So the communications sort of platforms were the first uh, uh, thing that we did. Uh, in 2014-15, we realized that we should be moving up the stack. 
because brands, marketers were coming to us and saying, I'm sending out all these messages, but I want to do segmentation. I want to automate a lot of what I'm doing. And that uh, gave birth to our MarTech initiatives. So uh, in technical terms, we call it journey orchestration, personalization, analytics, segmentation. And the idea is very simple that a marketer now can collect a lot of data from its customers, whether it's on the website uh, or or the app that they have. And then they can do omni-channel personalization because we are interacting with brands across multiple channels. So whether it's email, SMS, social media, uh, on the apps, et cetera. And what we want is personalized information. So this space fairly crowded. Uh, there are already, uh, again, if we look at uh, Adobe, for instance, has some yeah. solutions in the space. Somebody like a Salesforce and Oracle, these are very large enterprise players. And there are smaller standalone entities, but uh, fairly uh, unique and niche uh, players like a MailChimp, for instance, in the, uh, primarily yeah. in the US. Uh, so what was it that Netcore brought to the table which would uh, set you apart and which would help you uh, grow? Very good question, Venkatesh. So you're absolutely right. Uh, there were the big three players, Adobe, Salesforce, Oracle. They're, of course, still there and doing very well. Then there were also a sort of, then we had two types of competitors. On the email side, there were companies like MailChimp, which catered more to the small business segment. We were not there much, but there were players like SendGrid and others who were there on email which were there. And then there were multiple other players on the marketing automation side, local players like CleverTap, WebEngage, MoEngage, and others who had, who had come in. And our approach in this has been to have a core differentiator, which is our email strength. Okay, Because of the work that we had done in email uh, since 1998, um, we were very strong on the email side. And email is one of the best channels for communication. And then with the, with the core of email, we then built up what we call a full stack. So marketers did not, do not now have to take different solutions and piece them together. You know, there's pain in terms of integration. You know, your data gets siloed, so AI cannot work very well. Uh, you have to learn many different uh, interfaces to operate all of these components. And our approach has been that uh, the future of MarTech is going to be about full stack uh, solutions, integrated solutions. So we've not only sort of built our own Plus, we have done a few acquisitions to expand on this portfolio. So the, what works for us versus some of our competition is, a, is these three things. Basically, it's a full stack solution versus the US players. The pricing is much more attractive. And our ability to have uh, what we call customer success teams. So it's service uh, which helps because marketers, uh, again, have limited internal resources. Uh, for doing all of this. We have a very good team which can help them with best practices across the industry. Um, So this price, service, and full stack combination, I think is a very powerful combination with email as an an email as a very powerful underlying platform. I mean, like in India, we have almost a 75 plus percent market share in email. Emerging markets, it's close to 60% plus. So this has helped us grow very well in India and emerging markets and build a very strong business in Netcore around uh, uh, marketing for, which basically for B2C companies. So we are are not talking here of B2B companies, basically. So the large e-commerce players, D2C companies, uh, media companies, telecom companies, travel, et cetera. They all have a big challenge in interacting with large, you know, millions of their customers. And that's what the problems, uh, that's what the, the communication engagement and customer experience challenges are what we help solve for them. 
unlike some of the newer venture backed uh, unicorns uh, netcore has always prided on being a proficorn in the sense that you're a profitable privately held bootstrap and uh, growing kind of a with a fairly high value kind of a uh, company uh, where are you on the journey and at some point of time uh, given your scale some of the saas companies for instance zoho for instance has never taken external funding they prefer to be uh, privately held would uh, we see uh, rajesh listing a netcore at some point of time would there be an infusion of external funds i know that you have made a couple of acquisitions how have you funded till uh, them till now and going forward what's the road map yeah so uh, like you said uh, netcore like india world uh, has been was india world was for some netcore is profitable uh, and we've used our internal accruals through the years to uh, uh, for all our acquisitions in fact uh, we done a very large acquisition come investment and unboxed of close to 100 million dollars um so a uh, profitability has been sort of a core dna for me through my 30 years as an entrepreneur i'm not averse to raising capital at all but uh, i think if if uh, every business really needs to be profitable it's as simple as that um i mean uh, anyone can just have growth but profitable growth is i think very very important for every business to prove its worth basically otherwise you, know, you can any, anyone can spend more than um, uh then your 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 customers are paying you now our approach in this has been that while we have had we regularly talk to potential investors vcs earlier pees now because of a larger scale um no no deal has materialized uh, uh we have been uh, exploring the possibility of an ipo and uh, i think we've got a good scale now very good profitability and a good valuation for us to be able to list on the indian stock exchanges fresh this did probably go and list internationally is that also something which you are examining rajesh uh, no our most of our customer base right now is in india mm-hmm. and uh, our valuation would not be that high to justify a listing in the us and i think today uh, indian investors are, are also very smart i think in many verticals you can probably get better valuations uh, in india as we have seen from some of the listed uh, companies so what's the kind of timeline for listing you are looking at so uh, what we'll do is we will evaluate uh, in february of uh, next year basically i think there are two three factors one is of course market conditions uh, very important um, there's already talk of some sort of slowdown in the us uh, valuations of many companies have come down the tech stocks have fallen quite a bit this year so we'll make a call in conjunction with uh, many of the bankers investment bankers that we have spoken to we also wanted to do one full year of uh, integration with unboxed so we had just done the acquisition uh, we want to make sure that that you know, we have a full year of uh, integrated numbers with the cross sell upsell that we can do with uh, cross sell we can do between netcore and unboxed and the third factor is uh, we are working to strengthen our sort of leadership team uh, because kalpit uh, netcore ceo and me we'll have to spend a lot of time away from the day to day running of the business with the drhp and the investor meetings so we need to strengthen the leadership team and make sure um, business as usual does not get compromised in any way even as we do the ipo work uh, having said that uh, we continue to explore at every time at every stage both both options i mean incoming capital aligned to how we think and that's very important um, i have a long term view on the business 
Um, it's uh, I look at building Netcore out as in the words of Jim Collins as an enduring great company. Um, that was the mindset with which I also ran uh, India World, and I tell that to entrepreneurs: mm-hmm. never start a business with the with the but mindset. You have to flip the company for a so Your decisions have to be as if you're going to run this uh, for the rest of your life. Uh, if, obviously, exit opportunities come. You always look at them, always explore uh, as they come. Um, but uh, we will explore it. Uh, Netcore is 25% owned by employees, mm-hmm. uh, so that's a large uh, stake. Uh, and we obviously want to ensure that uh, an IPO will give them liquidity at the right price points. Also, more importantly, Venkatesh, it will give us a currency for doing acquisitions other than cash. So with cash, we can only do so much. Uh, but uh, I believe that going forward, there will be a fair amount of consolidation in the in the CPaaS smart tech sectors, basically communications platform as a service and smart tech. So customer engagement, broadly, if you call it, uh, on that sector because you can't have there are like probably seven eight ten thousand companies in the space globally uh, and no marketer wants to have more than a few solutions so consolidation is going to be important uh, netcore having done three acquisitions in the last uh, uh, three odd years i think uh, is well placed to be a consolidator we've got the right skill and uh, uh, i think adding in capital either through potential PE investors or through the public markets, I think will help us uh, in our journey going forward to complement the profits that we already generate every year. Look forward to tracking the progress you make in that regard. Thank you for your time. It's a pleasure talking to you, Rajesh, as always. Thank Thank you you very much, Venkatesh.